Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, and those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him was Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, on the right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah. Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadna, Zechariah, Meshalem, on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen! Lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabtai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. To the law. He said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Back in my youth, I played a lot of baseball. The only position I was any good at was catcher. It had its benefits. One of them was just about every year, depending on what team you were on, you got a new catcher's mitt. Nothing like a new catcher's mitt. It's all leather. And it's as stiff as a board. So what you got to do in order to get that catcher's mitt functional so it can catch a 90 mile, mile an hour fastball is make it soft. In other words, it doesn't come in shape. It comes as a big blob of leather and it's up to you to work it into shape so it's useful. So one of the things that we used to do was take about three or four baseballs and shove them right into the, to the web of the catcher's mitt and then bind it up with really tight rope and throw it in a buck of water for a few days. At the end of a few days, you let that sucker dry out and it was functional. You could grasp and close and catch and it's as if the ball was ready for that mitt. It was shaped. You see, that fits very well as an analogy with our text because that's where we find the people of God in Zion. They need to be shaped 
they need to be shaped. As we continue on in our mini-series, Building Community in Zion, it would, it would appear that chapter 8 is, uh, well, it falls in a perfect narrative sequence. Last time, we noticed that um, Nehemiah's role now was to pivot away from being the great building contractor of the wall to being uh, really a spiritual guide and mentor to the people of God to bring them to a place where they were able to reflect the glory of God that was symbolized in those great walls of Zion. But one of the problems with that is... um, Just because we uh, have covenant identity doesn't mean that we've been shaped properly. Chapter 7 was all about establishing the covenant identity of the citizens who would dwell in Zion. It was to be a place for the covenant people of God. No strangers allowed. But the problem is, just because they were born into the covenant didn't mean that their, their hearts and minds and souls had been trained properly. In fact, if we think about this generation of covenant people, one of the things that we can safely conclude and say about them by way of summary is that they were an untaught and unruly mob. The the truth of that, or, or the evidence of that is, here it is, 90 years after the return of the land, and they have just barely begun to build the things that God commanded them to. Oh, they were serving themselves when they came back to the land. And it took God raising up prophets, and it took God raising up somebody like Nehemiah to gather the people of God and to galvanize them to obedience. You see, he was in the era of the famine of the hearing of the word. In fact, if you look at the book of Malachi, which is the very last speaking prophet in the Old Testament, oh, it it is a dark letter. It is a scathing reproof and rebuke of the people of God. And and one of the reasons why they're in that position is because the people who had been appointed by God to be the teachers of the covenant people of God were failing to do their job. So you have a whole generation here that's been in the land for 90 years, uh, which has been returned to the land by grace, and yet they're an untaught mob. Think back to the generation behind them. They came from seven years of exile in Babylon. And I think we are safe to conclude, based upon the condition of the people who came back to the land, that they hadn't been taught well there either. If you reach back behind them to the generation of their great-great-grandfathers, what you find is a generation of the most gross uh, form of degradation and spiritual and moral corruption that you have in the whole history of the line of Judah. It was so bad in the days of Jehoiakim that God had to bring a foreign army upon Judah to, uh, to destroy the people almost in whole and march the survivors off to exile in Babylon. So what do we have here? We have a, we have a bunch of covenant people who haven't been taught for 150 years. And they are in great need of being shaped. They're in great need of being instructed and catechized in order that they would understand by their words and their manners and their religion and their devotion that they were under Christ and under the authority of His Word. We can see that this is what Nehemiah was aiming at if you look at verse 12, which is the last verse that we read in our reading today. Because what you have here is a very patient documentation of a note of obedience. 
where we're told that the people went away to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to celebrate just as they had commanded. And I want you to notice the key linking word there, which is because. You see, what Nehemiah records for us is the result of the people of God being shaped by the word. Because they understood the words of the law of God, they brought forth obedience from the heart, being directed by the Spirit of God through grace. And so this is what our chapter is about. Nehemiah is seeking to build community in Zion by shaping the covenant people by the Word of God. That's the same message for us this morning here. The Spirit of God would teach us through this text how to build church life that glorifies God. It's a church life that is shaped in all of its facets and matters by the Word of God. We're going to examine that this morning in two parts, shaped by the Word through preaching and shaped by the Word through application. And I, uh, I hope we all look forward to this and enjoy this this morning in a sense because this is one of the richest Old Testament chapters on the preaching of the Word of God and its effect upon the people of God. And so I want to walk through this step by step, pausing at some points to dwell on some of the things a bit more than in others. But, but let's begin here by simply noticing the preaching was to a gathered assembly. The preaching was to a gathered assembly. And there's, there's four things that we want to think about just under that one heading. And the first is the timing. If your Bible is open, you can just simply flip back to the, the final clause of the last chapter of 7. And you read there in verse 73 in the latter part, when the seventh month came, the sons of the Israel were in their cities. That's really where our text should begin. And it tells us precisely when this assembly gathered. They gathered together on the seventh month, it says when it came, which means it's the first day of the seventh month. And as you know from our studies in Old Testament worship, the seventh month was the most holy of all of the months on the Israelite worship calendar. Because in the seventh month was that great day of atonement. On the tenth day of the month, when, when the two goats were brought forth, one was slain, uh, for the remission of the sins of the people of God, and one was prayed over as the sins of the people of God were imputed to it, and it was the scapegoat, and it was sent away. It was the great day of forgiveness for the people of God. And then at the end of the month, beginning on the 15th through the 22nd, there was the, the great feast of booze, where the people of God were to gather together in shelters to commemorate the preservation of the Lord through the 40 years of wilderness journey, to humble themselves before God and to remember that though it was a meager existence, God kept His hand upon His people and He preserved them. And now He had brought them into the land of abundance by the grace of His hand. And what they had now as they stood before the Lord was all of His blessing. The seventh month was a key month and the very first day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets. It was a day when the trumpet was blown throughout the land to, to talk, or rather to remind the people of the drawing near of the Lord. So the timing of this gathering is important because it was the beginning of this most holy of months. 
The second thing here that I would have us note is the gathering itself. It's very interesting how our text draws this out from the original. It says, all of the people gathered as one man. And the word here is kahal. It's the technical word for a public assembly. It was a day of holy convocation because it was the feast of of trumpets, but there was more involved than that. But, But one of the things that strikes us here is the formulation of our text as it says, all the people. And that word people is the dominant term in our text. It's used 13 different times in Nehemiah 8. And the uh, phrase all of the people is used 9 out of the 13 times we read of this term people. So one of the things that is being stressed here as we work our way into the narrative and we think about the assembly here is it presents a unified portrait of the people of God together. And I want you to notice the makeup of that assembly. We're told out into verse 2 about this assembly, that it was an assembly of men and women, and all could understand or listen. It's men and women and children and those of understanding, and it really mirrors, in a way, the prescription of Deuteronomy 31.12, which fits a different situation just a bit, because Deuteronomy 31.12 speaks about uh, the reading of the law of God every seventh year during the Feast of Booths, which was in this seventh month, but just 15 days later. But still, I want you to listen to the prescription of the reading of the law of God. We are told there, assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, and the alien who is in your town. But the point of it all here is to emphasize something. And the emphasis is upon the wholeness of the covenant community of the people of God. It is the men, it is the women, it is the children. It is the totality of all of the covenant people gathered in worship before the Lord. One of the most painful moments of memory in in my time in the ministry was when I was preaching at another Reformed church. And I was asked to to read and and then preach from the Word of God. And so I, I got up as I was asked according to my invitation and I announced the reading of the text, and as soon as I did, half the congregation popped out of their seats and left. Now you can imagine as a guest preacher how that might strike you. I hadn't begun preaching yet. I hadn't even offended anybody as near as I could tell. And everybody jumped up, and I began to read the Word, and all these people, you can hear the scurrying away. Several minutes later, after the Word was completed and the Song of Illumination was sung, Many people returned, and as I inquired about that after the service, well, what I found out is they were taking the children out to children's church. Taking the children out of the worship to children's church. Well, people have got children's church is right here. Children's church is with the people of God. Children's church is the mothers and the fathers and the grandfathers and the grandparents and and all of the people of God gathered together in one assembly so they can sit together under Christ. Scripture doesn't know of any other service called children's church. You know, when I was a young boy, my parents would, would line us all up and there were six of us in our family, so there was no room for error when you went to church. 
And we were in a row. And he didn't move. He didn't twitch. He didn't get up. He didn't have toys. He didn't have nothing. What you did was sit there and listen to the worship of God's people. And you were expected to participate in any way you were capable of according to your age and ability. You know, one of the things that you learn when you do that from the time you're a little kid is that church matters. <laughs> Young children, boys and girls, let me look at you here this morning, and I love to see your faces every Lord's Day morning. You are so blessed that your mom and dad bring you here. You are so blessed that your mother and father wake you up and put your clothes on and bring you to church because you're learning about God whether you understand what's going on at all. I remember asking my dad when I was a kid, why do I have to go? I don't understand anything. And he would always say, you're getting more than you learn, son. And how true that is. Young people, think about this. When you come into this house of worship, what do we do when we call everyone to worship? We stand up. When we read the Word of God when we come here, you stand up. Maybe you don't even have a Bible with you. Maybe you can't even read. But what do you do? You stand up. Do you know why we do that? It's because we fear God. And when He speaks to us, we should show our reverence. After, after we read the law and we make confession of sin, what do we do? We get really quiet and it's uncomfortable. Right? You can hear people next to you breathing. Why do we do that? Because we're teaching the point that when we come before the Lord, the way to come before Him is repentance and confession of sin because we're sinful. You're learning about your own sins by that moment of silence. And we stand up at the end of the worship service and, and I raise my hand. It's one of the most important points of the worship service when I give the benediction. And what you're to know every single week, young people, is that God is sending you home with His blessing. You're so privileged to be here. And that privilege is yours because God called you to be here. <laughs> Moms and dads, there's nothing more important for you to do than to bring your children to church with all of the people of God. You're forming memories. You're teaching them so much by what you're doing. I can imagine the people and the children as they gathered here on this day and the whole crowd had assembled there in, um, in almost impatience and holy restlessness as they, as they cried out, bring out the book! Who were the young people thinking? They didn't even know there was a book probably. The one thing that was etched like stone upon their minds from that moment on, there's nothing more important than gathering as a people of God to hear the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word. This is a profoundly important uh, moment before us here in the Word of God because what we see is a, a generation of people who had never really been instructed are acting in a way that is shocking to us. They're acting like mature Christians. They act like they understand what the point of the worship is, which is to come before God and to hear from Him with all solemnity and due reference. This assembly is important. And I would have you notice the other thing about the gathering place. It was, it was in the town square. Uh, we have this odd instruction here. It says it was 
um, at the square, which is in front of the water gate, and you see, it might as well be on Mars. I don't know where any of that is. The point of it is, it was the, the largest place in the city. By the biggest gate. Which means it was the easiest point for all of the people to access the city and to come together for public worship. And one of the things that it reminds us of is that Proverbs, in Proverbs 1.20, where wisdom lifts up her voice and she cries out, where? In the marketplace. And it says that she lifted up her voices so that the naive and the simple-minded and the scoffer would hear and live. The reason for the reading of the Word in the public square was to consecrate the people. It was to be a publication in a public, wide-open place for everyone who lived in that city to hear from the Word of God that they would be instructed and they would be uh, turned away from their sins and taught how to live for the glory of God. The place is even significant here. And then I want you to notice the demand. And it's a really, it has the sense of a pent up demand, as we've already noted here. They asked Ezra the scribe to, to bring out the book. To bring out the book. It's as if the people were full of a sense of anticipation as they had gathered there at daybreak. They knew they were there for one reason. And it was to hear. The thing about it is, you know, people of God, is it wasn't spontaneous. It, it wasn't as if one neighbor grabbed hold of the other and said, hey, let, let's go to the town square. I, I hear something's going on there this morning. No, it was planned. And one reason why we know it was planned is because you look at verse 4, uh, Ezra the scribe, well, he stood on a, a giant wood podium. That takes time to build. They didn't just wake up and do that. There was preparation. In other words, uh, the best sense of this text is that when they had finished the wall, Nehemiah sent everybody home and he said, you all need to be back here on the first day of the seventh month because we're going to have a revival of the hearing of the Word of God. And the people showed up. Everybody had their invitation in hand and everybody was there and everybody was there for the same thing and they were full of expectation and perhaps they didn't even know why, but they cried out that Ezra would bring out the book. In other words, they showed up with a burning zeal and desire to hear the Word of God. This is how we're to gather. Larger Catechism asks uh, how the Word preached is made beneficial to those who hear and this summary line is just fabulous. There to attend upon it with diligence and preparation and prayer. Do you know why they were able to do that though? It's bound up in the last words of your text in verse 1. The law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. You see... The inner motivation and drive for the calling for the bringing out of the book was their own understanding that the word was given to them. They understood that this was their word. They understood that this was God's will for them. 
they understood that this was the means by which God would bless them spiritually. You see, it answers the question for us this morning, how in the world is it when you come to church on the Lord's Day morning after you're absolutely exhausted and worn out from all of your labors, whether that's out in uh, the workplace or whether as a mother at home caring for all of these children with all of their endless needs, how in the world do you come to church on the Lord's Day morning ready with diligence, preparation, and prayer to receive from the Word? Well, the answer is you can't. It's not in your strength. The beginning point for approaching the worship of God in the hearing and the reading and the preaching of His Word is the acknowledgement that this is the Word of God which is given to you. That this is a grace to be the recipients of revelation, and to be the people who are gathered together under the command of Christ to fall under the hearing and the reading and the preaching of the Word. And so what we find here is something that is to be admired and to, to be modeled. Thousands gathered, intentionally gathered, zealously gathered, all for one reason. They understood what this Word was. It was a word from God given to them by grace. It's a beautiful picture of revival. People of God, as we see it, this is what we ought to strive for in our midst, and this is what we ought to pray for for the whole church. I'm fairly persuaded that the Reformed Church needs this kind of revival. A revival just like this across the nation as the people of God rise up and cry out for nothing but the pure preaching of the Word of God. There's much to learn from this assembly. The other thing we learned from this assembly, it was assembly gathered for worship. I don't want to spend long on this point, but there seems to have been some tone set by Ezra in verse 5 as he, as he comes out and we're told that he stands. And, and then in verse 6, he says he blessed uh, the Lord, the great God, and I think there's probably a lot that's compacted in that statement. But he's setting the tone for the hearing and the reading of, of the Word of God and the preaching of that it would be a, it would be in the context of worship. It would be in the context uh, of them worshiping God and the people without instruction just seem to respond instinctually by crying out, Amen! Amen! They're here to worship. They're lifting up their hands. Then they prostrate themselves in humility. Notice the face plant at the end of verse 6. They bowed low and they worshiped the Lord with their noses to the ground. You see, they have come to worship God. They understand that the context for a fruitful hearing of the Word, the way to be, to be shaped by the Word of God and really radically changed and renewed is to come before the Lord in His house for worship with humility as those who are ready to receive from God. And then notice here the preachers of the Word. We're told that the Levites had a role in it all. In verse 7, they explained the law to the people while they remained in their place. And of course we know that is the charge of the Levites. According to Deuteronomy 31.10, they were to read the law in the hearing of Israel. It seems like Ezra had the dominant role in the preaching and the teaching of the Word. He's spotlighted in the text. And there's a reason for it. 
If you were to turn over to Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, you would, you would read about the call of God upon Ezra to be a student and a preacher of the word. It says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and its ordinances in Israel. And we begin with the key word in, in verse 10. It's, it's not studying, it's not practice, it's not teach, it's for. And 4 looks back to, to the last clause in verse 9 where it says the good hand of God was upon him. You see, that is a, that is a reference to his calling. He's been raised up by the, the hand of God. He's just exactly the kind of person you want to gather with thousands of people in the, uh, in the public square next to the water gate and listen to. He's not a phony preacher. He's a, he's a man who the hand of God is, and we read about that hand being upon him. He set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach it. He set his heart upon the study of the law of God. That means that he was a man who had devoted his life to the careful and systematic and, and scrupulous study of the, of the Word of God. He, he was a servant. It flowed from the depths of his heart. It, it directed his behavior. He studied carefully, consulted the Word of God. And we're also told that he practiced the law. He understood that his calling to be a teacher could not be uh, separated from his role as a disciple. He had to follow after Christ. He couldn't just talk about Him. You see, that's what makes him such a great and gifted preacher. He wasn't somebody who was interested in the study of the Word of God like somebody is interested in examining the pieces of a puzzle to see how the parts fit together. He was interested in the study of the Word of God so that it would bring forth fruit in his life. And out of the overflow of the study, and out of the overflow of his practice of the Word, we learn then that he taught the law. Well, that's the person here in our text, Ezra, who brings forth the Word. And so, let's examine now what happens with the preaching of the Word to this assembly of people who are gathered together in the first day of the seventh month who are longing to hear the Word. Well, first of all, we read that they read it. Look at verse 8. They read from the book. Now, verse 8 is simply a summary of the various details that are presented here in the first <clears throat> several verses about this transaction now of, of bringing forth uh, the book of the law of God and reading and proclaiming. And the very first thing that I think is important for us to highlight is that they read it. If you look at verse 3, uh, I don't know if it comes out in your own translation, but it says he read in it. He didn't just read the whole law, he read in it. And that would tell us that he had chosen particular portions of the word to read from. There would be no time to read the whole of the law of God uh, in just a handful of hours. And so one of the things that he did is he had selected his texts ahead of time, and before he proclaimed them, he read them. And, and it's important for us to know here, because that is the beginning, really, of the profiting from the Word of God. It is an element of worship. It is an element of worship. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation to teachings. Basically telling him what to do in public worship here. 
And the very first thing that he says is you pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. Well, that's just one word in the original. And it is a technical term to refer to the reading of the Word of God in the synagogue. Paul has plucked that word from his own rabbinical experience and he applies it to Timothy and to the church. And he says, this is an essential element of the worship of God's people. It's not some sort of peripheral exercise. The reading of the Word of God is an essential act and element of worship. We are hearing God speak very directly to us. You're not in my position, but I see it. I I read the Word with one eye open to the Bible and one to the congregation. And one of the most fascinating things happens when I do that is I see when the Word is read how it affects people physically. You would be shocked to see what people do when the Word is read. It's an important element because this is God speaking and the, the power of the Spirit is present. And the word is read, and it's a preparation now for the preaching. Notice in verse 8, they were translating to give the sense. In other words, they were making it clear and intelligible and lucid. They were bringing forth the sense. That means the interpretation and the explanation. They were providing interpretation. They were proclaiming the word. They weren't just reading. They were seeking to explain in order to apply. It's a model of preaching. And the point of it all here is is bound up in the very last clause of verse 7. So that they could understand. You see, their aim was the heart. The aim was the mind. They wanted to take the Word of God and, and to bring it to bear upon the interior spiritual life of the covenant people so that they would be changed. This is the shaping of the people of God through the preaching of the Word. And and as I pause now, before I go on to my next point about the shaping of the people of God through the application of the preached Word, I think it's important for us to just pause here and see what are some things we can glean for ourselves here this morning. As we think about this, and I thought about, well, we we could do it as if you're a bunch of preachers and I could talk about what we learn here about expository preaching, but this isn't a seminar. I'm preaching to the people of God. And I say, well, what if we approach it from the angle, other angle? What is it that we can receive as those who are hearing the word preached? And there's a couple of powerful points of application in our text as we approach it from the angle of how do we make the word effectual to ourselves when we hear it proclaimed. And the first principle here that we gain from our text about hearing the word of God so it is effectual to us, so it actually shapes our lives, is active hearing. Active hearing. Look at the last part of verse 3. And all the people were attentive to the law. Do you know what that word attentive means? Ears. Your ears. It literally says they gave their ears. It is a metaphorical way to speak of people giving their their whole self to the hearing of the Word. The way we uh, benefit and and take from the Word of God is is to be active participants in this. Is to give it our ears. 
so that we can draw from the word, so that we come into the force and the power of the word, so that we're shaped by the word. And the fact that that they were so completely and thoroughly given to this is indicated in the fact that verse 3 tells us that they were reading and preaching from the word in front of their water gate from early morning until midday. Well, you might have a, a text note in your Bible right next to the word early, and it means light. In other words, it's from first light. From, from the time that, that the rays of the sun came from behind the hills and began to, to, um, to penetrate the valley below. This is first thing in the morning. When the chickens are crowing, the people of God were gathered and they sat there until noon and they actively gave their ears for hours. This is full involvement. And I thought about that and I said it reminds me of another catechism. Question and answer number 90 in the shorter catechism. It explains how the word is made effectual to salvation. Here's how it's put. They are to receive it with faith and love and to lay it up in our hearts and to put it into practice in our lives. That's active hearing. To receive the reading and the preaching of the Word with faith and love. It means I've got to bring my faith to the, to the hearing of the Word of God. I've got to bring my love for Scripture and my love for Christ to the hearing and, and the preaching of the Word. And, and then I don't just bring my emotions and my faith. I lay hold of it as the Catechism correctly says and I lay it up in my heart that I may gain from it. The most valuable things on earth we put in our hearts. Lay it up in your hearts and then put it into practice in your life. That's active listening. People of God, this is how we benefit from the Word and get shaped by the Word as we come before it. It calls upon us to exercise ourselves. People often complain about preaching. And some of the complaints, no doubt, are valid. But one of them, uh, the response that the pastor always has in his toolbox is, well, what are you doing to make it better? Now, typically people don't like that question because they don't have any role in preaching the Word. But you see, what is meant is, what are you doing? Are you listening? Are you actively listening to the Word of God? There's a vast difference between listening and actively listening. There's one thing for the Word to go in one ear and out the other, and there is another to be leaning forward in the pew to hear. I'll never forget this one fellow when I preached as a guest preacher at this church. I did it a few times. And it was the oddest thing I'd ever seen. As soon as the preaching would begin, he put both of his arms in here. The entire word was going for. I was a young man and I got irritated. And I asked him. And he says, it's the only way I can concentrate. Now, if you say that and your mouth's wide open, you're snoring, it's alligator uh, uh, snatching sheep out of the and you're not actively listening. You know? But he said that's the only way he could concentrate. And he could tell me everything I said. So I believed him. I'm not inviting you to do that, by the way. But see, there's active listening going on. 
That's how we profit from the Word. We, we approach it with, with faith and love, seeking to, to lay it up in our hearts and then to put it into practice in our life. If those aren't our aims when we come, we're not going to profit. You could, you could swallow a thousand sermons and get nothing if that's not how you listen. The other thing that I think is important from our text about how to hear the Word so it's made effectual, so that it shapes us, is to hear it with reverence. There is so much about that particular point which is packed into this particular text. I'm just going to draw a couple. And the first one, and it's fairly obvious, in verse 5, we're told here, Ezra opened up the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above the people. When he opened it, the people shot up. It was like they were spring-loaded. The minute he opened the book, and it was evident that he was prepared to start reading it, the people stood Why? It's bound up in the description of verse 1. The book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given. You see, the standing before the word was an acknowledgement that it was the word that the Lord had given. The standing for the reading of the word, was an acknowledgement that it was the word the Lord had given. So it was a form of reverence. You may have asked yourself, why in the world do I ask you to stand up every single Lord's Day for the reading of the word? And the answer is because it is how we as God's people show reverence for the word. And one of the hardest things for us to have is reverence for the Word because we walk around with the Word in our Bibles just like this. It feels like we've captured it. We have it in our hands. It's on ink and paper. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that every single of these words had to trickle down from above. They came from God. They didn't come from us. So the people stood out of reference because they understood that the words which were about to be read weren't from Moses and they weren't from Ezra and they weren't from the Levites. They weren't from Nehemiah. They were from the Lord. Because of that, they were ready to listen. The key to becoming active listeners and to be those who are shaped by the Word of God is to to acknowledge it. To reverence it for what it is. It's like nothing else in this world. But probably one of the greatest obstacles to the vitality of the church today in this world is reverence for the Word. Am I really supposed to believe in a, in a nation that supposedly uh, the dominant part of its population confesses to be Christian that we really are all reverencing the Word? You see, it seems to me one of the, the greatest reasons which accounts for the weakness and the indifference and, and the spiritual apathy of the church and its inability to make any kind of stand or resistance or impact upon the culture is because we don't have reverence for the Word. We apologize for the Word. 
it says some things in there that are not really nice to say to people. It excludes people. It has a lot of stories in there that trouble people. You see, one reason why the church doesn't have any power today is because it doesn't reverence the Word. People of God, something we need to pray for ourselves and for the church today is that we reverence the Word of God. Believe me, the church would look a lot different in our age if we really believed the Bible was the Word of God. Think about that. The church would look a lot different today if it really believed the Bible was the Word of God. We'd be done apologizing and being ashamed of it. So they were shaped by the Word through the preaching of the Word. They were shaped by the Word through application. Let's see how much we can get done here. The first thing I want to show you is the evidence of application. And There's three quick things I can show you about the evidence of application. There are three, a series of three corrections, if you will. So look at verse 9. Okay? Look at verse 9. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. True, it was holy to the Lord. It was the first day of the seventh month. Leviticus 23.24 says it was a day for holy convocation. It's a day that's holy to the Lord then. And that meant they were not to grieve, and so they were grieving. And so here comes Ezra and the priests, and they correct the behavior. They corrected the behavior. Look at the second correction in verse 10. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We have a second application. They are engaging in behavior that is forbidden. In the preaching of the word, they are being corrected. They are being admonished. Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a third correction. Look at verse 11. Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. We have two admonitions. We have the third correction of a behavior that they were persisting in. Do not grieve is an application of the word. Their behavior is being corrected. And here's the thing that's odd about it. They were being corrected for something that was good. Why are they grieving? They're grieving because they're sorry for their sin. Normally when we see people grieving out of sorrow for their sin, we're grateful. And the reason we're grateful is not because we like to see people misery, but because it's an evidence and it's a token of sincere repentance. If you've never grieved over your sins, if you have never had a moment when you sit there and you think of your sin with nothing but utter shame, if you don't sit there with the horrors of the Lord before you thinking about your sin, you've never repented. Ever. Because the Apostle speaks of a real sorrow that's after the Lord. There is to be real repentance. And here we see the Spirit of God has done a powerful work. He's corrected these people of their sins. He's made them conscious of their sin and their guilt and their shame. And they're doing precisely what you would expect. And yet, because the law of God says it's the holy day, you can't grieve, they had to be corrected. An evidence of application. There's a second evidence of application. 
One is correction, the other is direction. Look at verse 10. Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. See, instead of grieving, they were to do something. It wasn't all negative. Don't do this and do that. This is application. They were to feast. They were to enjoy the fat, the richness, the sweetness, the pleasantness, the sugariness. They were to enjoy God's grace. They were to give. Notice they are to send portions to Him who has nothing prepared. They were to have a concern for their neighbor because of their own experience of the overflow of God's grace to them. They were to look around and see if anybody didn't have something that they should have had. They were to give it to them. This is clear direction. This is application. But then I want you to notice the evidence that application shaped them. That's my point here. They were shaped through the preaching of the Word through application. Notice the evidence here. Now come back to this morning. A moment in verse 12. Verse 12 says, All the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate because they understood. The application worked. It got through. Uh, We didn't read this portion of the text beginning at verse 13, but it's really astonishing. Uh, Verse 13 says, Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households, all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that he might gain insight into the words of the law. Another revival broke out on the second day. They sent their wives and children home and they stayed back in Jerusalem so they could sit at the feet of Ezra and learn from the law of God. Because they understood that their calling before the Lord was to train up their household in the way of Christ. They couldn't do that unless they were instructed. They understood it was their solemn responsibility and duty before the Lord to understand the Word of God, that they may take it home and apply it to their families. Verse 14 and following simply records for us their follow-through and obedience. And something that tells me that this was no normal day of obedience and being shaped by the Word is what you find in verse 17. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day. That's 1,000 years. They had failed to obey God. That's a pretty powerful sermon to change a thousand years of behavior overnight. And that's what happened. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God was applied and it produced real fruit and obedience. So much I would say here about application. and There's much fruit to think, but I, I think I've gotten my point home. They were shaped by the Word through application. There was explanation, you can't do this, you must do that. And then they said, and here's the reason why. And the fruit of it all is that the people of God responded in obedience. And so by way of conclusion and application, I come back to verse 12 and I marvel over the words that we have here. All the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and celebrate the great festival because they understood the words that had been made known to them. If there was ever evidence of being shaped by the word, this is it. 
The very reason that accounts for their obedience is spelled out here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in black and white terms. The connection between application and obedience is forged by because. The reason they went and obeyed is because they understood the words. People of God, this is the point that we take from Nehemiah. This is the way community is built in Zion. This is how the church is shaped and built up. Into the people of God. Through understanding the words. And under the direction of the Holy Spirit, application is made. Real amendment of life occurs. We begin to behave like the people of God. We need to understand the meaning of the word. We need to understand the purpose of the word. We need to understand the application of the word. And then when we do that, we'll begin to be changed. We all have our part. The pastor's job is to make it plain. Interestingly, it never tells us that Ezra was entertaining, interesting or even enjoyable to listen to. We are told, though, that he gave the sense. They gained understanding. That's the pastor's job, and your job is to do what? To stand up and reverence the Word by listening. When that happens, the Spirit of God takes those words and causes them to be understood. And the understanding shapes how you live. I know the Christian life is hard. I know that we very often set ourselves to do what we believe is right according to the Word. And there's a giant pothole in the next step that we never saw. We fall right through it. We brush the cobwebs off our face and clean up our hands and dig our way out of the hole. We, we start sprinting. The next thing you know, there was another pothole that was camouflaged. We fall in it all over again. I know this. But you know what, people of God? We just keep on soldiering. We keep coming back to the Word. We seek that understanding because the Word of God tells us this is how God works. As we understand the words, He fashions our hearts to seek His glory. He builds us in the image of Christ. He gives us an appetite in our soul for these things. He renews us again and again to obedience. He shows us our sins. So we humble ourselves before the Lord and cry out for His mercies and joy being covered over in the blood and have the sense and awareness of the forgiveness of all of our sins and the mercy of God in Christ. And then we get up with the understanding of the Word. And we keep moving forward. That's how we get shaped by the Word. And as that happens, Zion is built by the grace of God. Zion is built. The church is refreshed. And we take up our calling. Thank God for Nehemiah.
chapter 8, shaped by the Word. Father Almighty, we thank You for another lovely text in this great old book. There's so much for us to learn from generations of old. Your Word even tells us to. These things were written for our example in order that we may depart from evil things. We thank You for this word of exhortation this morning that we would be shaped by the Word as we understand it. Would you take your word this morning, Heavenly Father, and apply it to the hearts of all of your people here, young and old, small and mighty, mature and immature, and everything in between. All of us need it. Everyone. And would you strengthen and nourish our soul with it and build up Zion right here in our midst. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.